college is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. Larissa here. Before we begin, I want to just remind you that we are in the midst of the great campaign. This is our annual end-of-year fundraiser, where this year we have set out to raise $100,000. Last year, our goal was $75,000, and we made it. And because of that, we were able to offer really excellent courses this last year. So this year, we're hoping to raise 100000 so we can offer even more courses in the coming year. As you may know, our courses are free to our fellows. But to us, they are quite costly to run. Any amount that you are able to give will go directly towards offering these liberal arts courses in our hopes to make a liberal arts education accessible to everybody. So thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Magnus Podcast. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. Larissa Bianco here. Today, I am interviewing the lovely Lila Lawler. She's a Catholic homeschooling wife, mother, grandmother, author, speaker. In fact, if you're familiar with Thomas More College, you may already be familiar with her. Lila, welcome. So good to meet you and have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I would like to give you the floor for a minute. Could you just tell our listeners who there's actually quite a few of them who are homeschooling mothers. So could you give us just a very brief, like, what's your background? Um, Who, who are you? (laughs) Well, I'm just, I'm just a housewife. I am a person, I am a uh, person who, you know, grew up in the in the very throes of feminism and was all set to go be a career woman and um, just didn't want to and got married. I was pretty young when I got married and um, just realized I wanted to have a family. I'm an only child um, whose parents were divorced. So had a very unhappy childhood and, um, I really wanted something different for my life. And yeah, I just really wanted to get married. I did not set out to get married, but I did meet somebody. Um, I met my husband, who, by the way, uh, teaches at Thomas More College. He teaches, he's a journalist and writer, um, but he does teach one course, usually a year. And, uh, and, and our connection is that uh, we, we, became acquainted with the college when our youngest daughter, Bridget, attended the college. And that's when um, it was at that time that my husband uh, was asked to teach there. So we have a nice relationship with them. Um, And uh, he established the Center for the Restoration of Christian Culture. And I am a fellow there. But mainly, I'm a housewife. I love being a housewife and um, I started out, you know, started having children and 
quickly realized that I knew nothing about homemaking and I had ideals. I had an imagination about what I wanted things to be like, but the practical aspects of it were very difficult. And even though, you know, I'm older now, and I think a lot of people uh, tend to think of things as having happened maybe like 20 years ago, but actually feminism and the whole culture of women working started when I was a teenager and heading off for college. So in the 70s, and that's getting to be a long time now, but it seems like this cycle perpetuates of women longing to be at home, longing to take care of their children, even longing to teach their children, but not knowing how to do it. So uh, what happened was that I was pretty lonely. And of course, it's hard to even imagine, but there was no internet. I could go get a book out of the library. Um, I could meet, maybe meet somebody at church, maybe at the playground, probably not because I lived in a city and the other, the people at the playground, the adults were nannies, not moms Mm. for the most part. And so um, it was lonely and I ended up figuring things out for myself, not without a ton of difficulty. And then I got, you know, my children were growing up and I had gained a bunch of skills. I mean, I'm still, still to this day as a grandma struggling along, trying to figure things out. But when the uh, internet came to be, and then blogging came to be, I started to notice just this, that, that there were the same struggles and that people were trying to figure things out we're just at the same level of impracticality that I was. And so I really had the desire to kind of help people not reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that blogging was the perfect um, medium for that because it's something that you can do without necessarily putting in the commitment of sitting down and writing a book, which is you know, just a lot. And I still had a family to run. Mm-hmm. And it's always been, for me, it has always been, and I really do want to make this clear because um, blogging has become very much a monetized thing. And it didn't start out that way. And it has always been for me just a means of sharing my ideas. Anybody who goes to my blog will will notice, hopefully, that you can just click on my blog and there it is. You don't wait for anything to load because there's no ads. There's no promoted posts. It is not monetized. Um, So I am not a career blogger. I am not somebody who is kind of like posing as a housewife, but actually has a full-time gig running a blog. I'm not like that. So only to say that I was putting up posts at, you know, on the run while I was doing all the things, homeschooling um, and making dinner and all those things. However, my youngest child was already kind of 10 years old. And so I did have some time to do that. And that was a big thing for me because I also noticed that a lot of the bloggers, most of them had very young children. And, and I started to realize that they were falling into a lot of the same 
traps that I had climbed out of. And so that just gave me the urge to just really speak my mind and to to and and more as like cultural commentary to say you don't need to do these things these things have already failed and um the advice that you hear is advice promulgated by experts who themselves do not actually have children or they might have one or two children they certainly don't know what it's like to raise five six seven however many number of children um so I really felt yeah, like, well, if I'm going to say something, this is what I'm going to say. And and it did end up that the blog became almost like the rough draft of my subsequent book, The Suman Domestica, um, which is like an edited and fully fleshed out version of most of the things that I wanted to say, by no means all but I did my best. It's three volumes. So I think it's enough. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'll have to talk about that because we have quite a few lovers of Thomas Aquinas here. So hear your take on it. But I want to go back to some of the traps. You said that you, you heard these traps and, you know, you were able to climb out of them. So can you talk about what you hinted at it, right? These these lies of our culture and feminism. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about what these traps are and how, you know, we might have moms listening who are currently in the trap or they're in the midst of climbing out of it. So how... Or, or maybe they're just very, maybe they're very conflicted because they can sort of see the things that are traps, but they don't quite cannot quite articulate to themselves what it is and they and and it makes them anxious and they don't exactly know why and I've found this over and over again I've had so much feedback I mean I have had thousands of emails from people thousands tens of thousands of comments on the blog and I think I do have my finger on this that there are there are things that our culture perpetually tells us we sometimes gullibly accept them. Sometimes we do have a warning bell in our head, but we don't necessarily know what it is that we need to avoid or what the guiding principle should be. So to give you an example, like the very first thing is the trap of simply not knowing what marriage is, what the purpose of marriage is. And so, you know, you're married and you wanted to get married. You freely chose to get married. You were Mm -hmm. asked several times. are you freely choosing this? And, um, <laughs> and, you know, maybe even we're, we're told like, don't do it if you don't want to. And you said, no, I want to. And so now you're married and, and you've, and what our culture tells us is that marriage is essentially, um, a kind like everything else in our world is basically a kind of war it's a conflict, at least a conflict. And um, we are not told the truth, which is that marriage is a cooperation mm. and it is a um, a fundamental institution um, that is a cooperative union of um, the two in one. It's a one flesh union and mm-hmm. it is for the purpose of having children and educating them. Mm-hmm. And even, even those two things, the unity of marriage and 
the procreation of children, even those two things, the trap is to put them in opposition to have them be in conflict. We are in so much conflict mode in everything that we do in our whole approach to life that we can't even contemplate that without making it a conflict. But it is not. It is a, even that is a, you know, two sides of, of one reality what marriage is and what it is for. So what it is, is a two flesh union. And um, what it is for is for the procreation and education, nurturing, nurturing is a better word than Mm -hmm. education, because education sounds very narrow, whereas what it means is like the whole formation of this person who is a gift, given as the overflowing of the love between the two. So that's the first trap is just to see everything as a conflict. And then there's so many traps, like one of, just to give an example and not necessarily continuing in order of priority, but, but for instance, I would, I would be, you know, the early blogs were like, they were crafting blogs. And so you'd be, you'd be very, you know, um, appreciatively reading a blog about somebody quilting or something like that. And she would have a couple of young children. And then in the comments, somebody would say, well, how do you do your craft? And, and maybe also blog and raise your children. And maybe that person is homeschooling. And so how do you do that? And then the person would start to say things like, oh, well, we just have such a gentle way of doing things. And, you know, my children just, Uh, we find that we just can all live together in peace and harmony and everything will be fine. And it's like, well, no, not really. That's not exactly how family life goes. Um, You actually need to parent your children. And maybe that means it's not a good idea to be blogging when you have very little children. And um, that it's kind of a trap to think, oh, I can create this image of myself and think that the children are just going to come along with it and somehow be okay, that I don't have to actually put my energy into forming my children by establishing a rhythm in my home, by making sure they understand that they are my first priority um, within the hierarchy of marriage, within the relationship with my husband. And um, that I am actually going to uh, somehow like have this paradox of being able to be creative. I mean, there's certainly, if we look in the past, the homemakers of the past were very creative. In fact, I would say that that under great hardship, they were far more creative than we are. Sure. Um, but but s- somehow not putting their identity into that and making the children come along. A lot of times, you'd have, you know, things would be just. Um, given you get a glimpse, something would be said as an aside and all of a sudden you're realizing, hmm, the way she blogs is that the children are watching a movie and you actually can't park your children in front of the TV so that you can get, you know, quote unquote, something important done. That's, that's just not how raising children goes. And then what the, the bigger trap is that the children will come to be seen as an obstacle to your quote unquote gifts your creativity, what have you, and then you just won't have as many children as maybe God would otherwise have sent you. And I think that that's sad. I think that that's, you know, and that speaks to a, another 
big trap, which is I call um, in my writing, I have called child resistance, which I think is the default position of people in our society is is to to kind of have this idea that children are the obstacle, that it's okay and nice probably to have one or two, or even to be like a big Catholic family and maybe have four, but that you are in control and that, that at the end of the day, you can resist the idea of that maybe you would just accept the children God sent you and not even realizing um, that he he may not send children. And this is like a big lie in our in our um, society is the idea that if you do not actively resist having children, you will end up with 20 children, which I think if we just think about the people we know and the struggles they have, we realize that is just absolutely not true most people, when you really talk to them, I mean, like, it's very obvious. You see, um, big families are obvious. So when you come across them, it's a little bit overwhelming sometimes. And you're kind of like, whoa, yes, big families are, oh, that's what happens, you know, but actually that just Mm -hmm. by the nature of it, you notice them. But what you don't notice until you really start to talk to people is, oh, well, yeah, we could only have, you know, one, or we could only have three or, I always wanted to have more children, but they just never came along. So actually, that's actually a lie that every single couple who isn't in a state of constant resistance will end up with a million children. That's just not true. And so that's kind of one of the traps that I that I realized as I lived my life, as I myself went through having children Thinking I would, I mean, I got married when I was 19, had my first child in my 20, when I was 20. Um, And thought to myself, oh yeah, I mean, I'm going to have 20 children. Well, I have seven children. And (laughs) and (laughs) my last child came when I was um, 36. And that's it. Like that was it. And, you know, that is something that nobody really tells people you may not have another child. So what is the point of all the energy that you spend in resisting children? So those are the things that I I realized I had to write about. They're not normal bloggy things to write about. I try to be a sort of value added content. So, you know, I'm not going to say the same things that other people say. When you come to read what I have to say, you will probably get something just a little bit that you didn't really expect. And at at least um, if you're just listening to mainstream things. So I'd say those are the, you know, my little stab at what the traps might be and uh, what I felt. Yeah. I think I need to, to just go ahead and, and talk about some of these things. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think the modern day version of what you experience with the blog is Instagram now, right? You have these reels of these women and there is something very admirable about the fact that you have homeschool moms who are homesteading and they're in their pretty dresses with their chickens and it's nothing against that, right? Like I, I respect women who put on a dress every day, right? Either for their (laughs) husband or for their own 
you feel better when you look good. <laughs> oh right? yeah, yeah, okay. for sure. And it's a great model. It's it's absolutely those pictures is very inspiring for sure. It yeah. is, but it it does exactly the same thing. I I wonder how many of those moms are in the process putting their kids in front of TV so they can get this pretty shot or spending hours on their phone editing the reels while their child is begging them to hear a story. It's a it's tricky because it comes down to whether it comes down to the images and yes, so it all transitioned over to Instagram and that and that can in one way that can be again, like I'm on Instagram too. However, no blue check mark, no no monetization, no ads, nothing. And I'm not promoting anything. Occasionally I mention my book and that's it, you know, like seriously. And and so really it comes down to this idea of monetization. And monetization, it's something I keep on threatening to write an essay that the title of which would be monetiz- the love of monetization is the root of all evil. Because what it means is, so in scripture, we read the love of money is the root of all evil. And is money evil? No. I have money in my wallet. You have money in your wallet. We need money. Money is a a, a valuable tool. It makes it so that we don't have to take our cartons of eggs and go around trying to find someone who has flax to sell us to trade with us we can actually just take ten dollars and go sure. buy what we need and and that is a very important advancement of the human race but but the problem is and it is simply this and so then we don't have to have disclaimers about how much we love looking at ladies in dresses with their chickens or want to be a lady in a dress with chickens um <laughs> But it comes down to this, which is that when you take something that is not a matter of commerce and you try to monetize it and make it into commerce. So whether that is the priesthood, whether it is home life, whether it is being a housewife, there are some things, you know, I really reject. There are often, every so often it'll come up, somebody will say, well, you know, being a stay-at-home mom is work. And then they'll have a breakdown of all the tasks that a stay-at-home mom does and how much you'd have to pay someone to do each one of those tasks. And then they'll come up with a bottom line of how much your worth is as a stay-at-home mom. And to me, I just reject all that because there are some things that you cannot put a money value on, nor do you do them because you are paid. And Mm. that is, so, so yeah, like, you know, do I want to go on Instagram and see someone's pretty cake or see how it is that she has arranged her chicken coop or whatever? Yes, I do. But if, if our world is made up of people who are monetizing the things that they're doing then they're not actually doing those things anymore. They're just doing a simulacrum of them. And so so then we have to pull back and we have to say, 
I just have to live my life. But but how do I live my life? And the truth is that pictures are really helpful. So that's one thing why on my blog, for instance, I always I have a very strict rule for myself, which is that every post has to have at least one picture. <laughs> I think I've only broken that like once or twice in the like 17 or 18 years that I've been blogging. But um I do think that having a pretty picture is super important. And I think we can really help each other by just saying like, here's how it could look. Here's, let me put a view and a, a an image on what it is that you hope and dream about that you haven't even really maybe thought about. But I always want to say, I'm just a struggling person like you. And like, I'm going to share my thoughts but you know explicitly or implicitly I just also you know sometimes I will say it and sometimes I just assume that we get it that I'm not going to say it all and um (laughs) that might be belied by the my husband would say the millions of words that I poured out but (laughs) but at some point you've got to think for yourself and you've got to get up and do the things and it's because there's people around you and um and they need you and they need the devotion that you have to in your life the people with whom god has put us need our devotion and mm-hmm. that cannot be monetized and so it is a it is a tricky fine line it's something that i've had to um often you know struggle with a bit myself just just even when like my blog got pretty popular, even just some people saying to me, like, you know, you can just really, you could start making money from this, or you could, you could definitely reach more people by doing this or that or the other. And and so I've really had to say, like, only have a certain amount of time in the day. And mm-hmm. I need to be free when, you know, when my children were at home, I needed to be absolutely free. Mom, I need this, like I can just go and do it. Or, you know, within the context of the thing, my duties at home and not be beholden to some outside thing. And now even as a grandmother to say, I have to be free to help one of my children to go help a daughter who's having a baby, to help my son if he needs something. Um, I cannot have a career. There has to be someone in the home who is just totally available. Mm-hmm. and isn't um beholden to outside now you may be very beholden to the duties that you have in the home so there's very many times that you might have to say i am actually making supper and i'm not going to redo a story right now <laughs> it's fine you know right. we'll read at rest time or i'll read you i'll read to you after dinner or whatever but right, right. now no i cannot but to say well my boss or the algorithm, or what have you, those out external things, external from the home, it's mm-hmm. not possible for me. And, you know, speaking to men, for in men in family life, it's the same thing. Like, why do we even have, it's not exactly the same. The reason that a man can be beholden to the outside entity who can demand um, performance and presence and what have you is precisely because he has a wife 
to take care of the things that pop up. I mean, mm-hmm. if there's a child in the NICU, you know, and both parents are working, who's going to be with the child in the NICU? And ask any NICU nurse, and she will tell you. It is really, the parents are not there. Oh, so, I mean, how can they be? It's yeah. really, it's it's really dire. And and I mean, that's, a, that's another thing. Well, anyway, getting back to husband's, uh, and the man, even for the man to be beholden to that side, he still has to have as much as he's as is possible. He has to have boundaries, and certain things have to be sacrosanct. And you know, God gave the Sunday, and really, society should protect the Sunday for exactly <laughs> this reason, so that even those who are beholden to outside uh, entities still have. A sacred space in which to keep out any of that influence and um, invasion of the need to make money, and and that is that is essentially what the Sunday is, and why why it's in the it's in the Ten Commandments because it's 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 very very important. So anyway, um, yeah, I mean, there's a there's just a lot there, but. But I think, I think that, you know, this whole social media thing, we just really always have to ask ourselves because monetization has become such a pervasive aspect of, of life and we really have to resist it. It's really not good. And um, there's a big difference between going and earning some money and earning the things that should be apart from um, money making into part of the money making process. There really should be a separation, and we should protect the things that are on the outside of that, you know, money making enterprise for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about going into that a little bit more with the sacred spaces because. This is something that I think about quite a bit. I have two young children. I'm currently pregnant with the third. And I'm constantly struggling with sacred spaces are so important, right? Especially as I'm Orthodox, but you're Catholic. And we understand like from the temple to the Holy of Holies to church, but then also our own homes, right? Like we should have sacred spaces and children especially should understand that sacred space is something where there are boundaries, but there are blessings. Can you talk a little bit about creating sacred spaces in your home throughout the day of a homeschool mom? Or maybe you're not a homeschool mom. Maybe any 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 family has to have. So the home itself is a sacred space. Because why? Because just as so sacramentally, you know, the the macrocosm is the church. the The actual building of the church is the sacred space for the sacrament of the Eucharist there and the sacred action there, the liturgy, the mass. Um, and just analogously, and in a microcosm, the home is the domestic church, and it's the same thing: the home, the actual building, but but the place where the people live 
is the sacred space for the sacramental union of the husband and the wife, which participate in the Eucharistic sacrament. And so, um, and so truly it is sacred and, um, and the children have to learn that and they learn it in the, um, the, just the beautiful family life that is uh, made up of firmness and affection so that things can be taught in a loving way because the people actually really love each other. So, and that, that goes back to the trap that I, that I had identified was like the kind of relinquishing of the firmness part of it, kind of like, well, we should be so loving. We should always just be loving. And so we're not going to discipline our children or whatever. And yet, and yet God disciplines us. We read that in scripture. God disciplines us. So, so it is godlike to discipline. And, and as God's representatives to our children, which we know from the commandments, um, honor your father and mother, we know that we are God's representatives to our children. We are the first knowledge that the children have of, of transcendence of otherness of a being who has only your good at heart. For our children, we are the conduit of God's love, God-like to them. So, but they have to learn that. So just as the people of God have to learn about God, the <laughs> people of the, the children of the parents have to learn. And and mm. there is something innate in them that does respond, but we can't, we can't, we can't relinquish or, or, or even abjure this duty to to teach. So little by little, you know, in, in with this firmness, and even when the baby is nursing and kind of like, I don't know if you've had a baby that kind of like smacked you in the face as he's nursing, and and you just gently take his hand and you just gently like stroke your own cheek with his hand and you mm -hmm. gently move his hand down. You're teaching him. You're teaching him. Mommy's face is sacred. We don't smack mommy's face. We're talking about a four-month-old. People would say, you cannot discipline a four-month-old. Oh, yes, you can. But the discipline is appropriate to the development of the child. So when, a, when the six-month-old is scratching you, and then you say, gentle, gentle with mama. Even though that six-month-old has not started talking, he understands so much. And so when you say, oh, no, we don't do that. We never scratch mama only. Be gentle. And then the child starts to learn. And um, I think that in terms of space, even just to say, you know, this is our home. Mm -hmm. so it's not going to be throwing, um, picking up something and throwing it at the wall. Oh, this is our home. We have to, we have to treat things with respect. Little by little, is you, are you going to see results right away? No. Then there are, but little by little, you will. And then there's areas. And this, so actually, I it's funny because um, unexpectedly, I thought I was going to write a book that had the content of the blog in it, and eventually I did. But unexpectedly, I first wrote a book called The Little Oratory, which um, I wrote with David Clayton, and mm -hmm. um, and it really is about making a sacred space in your home. And I would say to anyone who's listening. And I'm sure as an Orthodox um, believer, you already do this, but um, I would really say the most important thing you can do in your home 
is to have your home altar, your little oratory, your icon corner, whatever you want to call it, the place where you have your crucifix, your statue of Our Lady, your icon, the iconostasis of the area, you know, the important saints, a little holy of holies, and that it with candles. And when the children are toddlers, it's going to have to be a little bit high up. It's also lovely to have something a little lower down for them to work with as well. And we write about, about that in the book, exactly how to set it up and exactly why and exactly what the traditions are and the importance of it. And it's so important because right away, the child will respond to this idea that children are so hierarchical. They totally understand that there are some things that are matters of awe and wonder. And um, even I've had people say to me, you know, I've said, listen, you have to have candles on your table, on your on your kitchen table, wherever you're eating supper, there needs to be candle. You need to light the candle. When you're saying your prayer, you need to light a candle. And I'll say to me, I have five boys. I cannot, you know, I have three boys and I can't possibly think, well, I had three boys. I had three boys and four girls. Um, and I'm here to tell you that boys can learn to respect a candle. And they better learn to respect a candle. Because if a little boy cannot learn to respect a candle, then I don't know how you think that that little boy is not going to like run out into the street and get killed. I mean, I'm sorry to say it, but we have to learn that there are boundaries and there are places you can go, things you can do. And then there's also times you have to listen to mama. You have to learn hot. I remember my, I can remember, you know, my mother saying to me you can say to your baby like hot hot and that's one of the first things that he'll learn and you can take his little hand when you know the outside of the stove gets a little warm and you can say hot hot don't and you can teach them and even if their hand gets a little close and it is a little uncomfortable that is a good thing when it's paired with the word hot so that they learn I have to respect this. Over the years, it will have effect. And then the older children will transmit it to the younger children and your job will be easier. And certainly some of us have wilder children than others. And so we have to live with a little more chaos. Sure. <laughs> some of the people are sitting there. I can tell you, I remember going to, trying to get to daily mass and seeing a family there with their like six children just all sitting there, including the toddler and thinking, well, yeah, my kids are not going to just sit there. And they didn't for a really long time. But sure. little by little, they learned. And when the older ones got to be, you know, seven and eight, it was a lot easier with the younger ones, which had to keep at it. But this is the thing is like coming to realize, oh, this is an actual task. This is an actual, it's not a job in the sense that you get a paycheck and a pat on the back from the boss. But, I, but it is a task. It is real work to think about it and to plan and to 
um, make your strategies and to consider like, how can I say, how can I make it work that my children are not going to just like burst into my bedroom? I'm not one of those people who says the children can never go into the master bedroom. I don't really agree with that. I liked having my kids jump in bed with us um, in the morning. And I always, but I always, my husband and I always demanded that they act respectfully in there because it's it's a sanctuary and mm-hmm. they need to learn that and they can't just go rummage and they can't just throw their stuff in there. But then I also have to treat my bedroom with respect and not have piles of laundry in there and aim to keep it clean and make the bed every morning. So when we treat things with respect, our children will learn to treat them with respect too. I have a lot. I have chapters and chapters about this. (laughs) Oh man. And isn't that the hardest giving our children something to imitate? Yeah. So we're learning while the children learn, we're learning. Mm -hmm. And God gives us the grace of giving us like completely, um, completely oblivious, you know, babies, one-year-olds, two-year-olds who really aren't going to remember anything so that we have a chance to catch up and to, and to, to figure things out in time. Mm-hmm. We're just one step ahead of them. Yeah. You know, what's fascinating. I was thinking about this the other day because I am guilty of this as mothers. We want to put our children, like if we're going into the grocery store or going up to light a candle in church before liturgy starts, You'll often see mothers with their children in front of them trying to herd their children. And I am guilty of this. Like when my kids go light a candle, I'm always, I have them in front of me. And then I saw a mom with her kids behind her. Mm -hmm. And then I was thinking about how in the animal world, you never see a mother tiger behind her babies. She's always in the lead. And there's a safety thing to that, right? Like when we're crossing the store to go into food lion. You don't want your kids behind you, especially right. if you have like my youngest is slow. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But that's funny that you say that because, yeah, I just just yesterday I was watching a mom go through the parking lot with the child trailing behind her. And it made me really anxious because it's like, no, cars could be pulling out right. or whatever. You and I, and I had a bad experience with that, with with not with having my child behind me and not realizing the dangerous situation she was in. So there's that like vigilance of in a place, you know, but then it becomes a habit where in a situation where they actually need to see you do the thing and they need to have the experience of mom and even more dad's attention is not on me because it's on something that I can't even express how amazing that thing must be. And that is so important. And so this again, we have to be so aware and always thinking about that. We really have to think. And you know, I met a priest who just told about how he owed his vocation to a, a, a moment where he and his mother were in church and they were leaving the pew and his mother got out of the pew and genuflected. And he, at that moment, he kind of just got out behind her and just kind of was standing there. I think he was seven 
And he said, I realized at that moment that my mother was totally focused on basically saying her farewell to our Lord. And she was not thinking about me. Hmm. And I realized that whatever that was, was so great that I Hmm. would serve it. Wow. And that is how the seed of his vocation to become a priest started at that moment that he could remember. And that really profoundly affected me because, yes, we're always, this is our current culture too. Our current um, parenting culture is not only to be constantly having the children in front of us and watching them and making sure, but even even speaking for them and even intervening between them and other people. So if I say to a child, um, oh, hello, uh, hello, little, you know, Margaret, how are you today? Are you having a good time here? And then the mother says, Margaret, this is all I'm saying. Are you having a good time? Well, <laughs> Margaret is three. Margaret can hear me. Margaret can answer me. And if she doesn't answer me, I am 63. And so I am not going to be offended <laughs> or even judge you <laughs> that your right. three-year-old did not answer me because I have had seven three-year-olds. And I am perfectly aware of what a three-year-old can and cannot do or does and does not want to do. That is not a surprise to me. And you yourself should be pretty confident that whatever your three-year-old does is it's going to be okay that you don't have to apologize for your three-year-old. I mean, just let your three-year-old talk to a person, whatever, like what's going to happen? What's the worst that's going to happen? And I kind of feel like people are, are uh, actually interfering with their children's interactions, with their children's learning, with their children's awareness by constantly like hovering over them and being part of every single thing they do. Just let them go and talk to people. And um, I remember, I remember my stepmother. So I had three, I had two half sisters who were quite a bit younger than I, and um, we'd be in a public place and my stepmother would be kind of weary of taking care of them or like talking to them. And she'd say, go ask that lady, go ask that lady how she's doing. Of course, she was Egyptian, so she could get away with this, but it's kind of like, go, go say to that lady, how are you doing? And so the toddler would just toddle over. This is like, I can remember on an airplane, being on an airplane, they were much more spacious in those days. There was much more room for moving around. And she literally sent her three-year-old down the aisle to talk to some stranger down there because her attitude was that stranger's going to be charmed. Um, It wasn't like the middle of the night or anything. and. The worst that's going to happen is my kid will come back and I'll have had two minutes of peace. And, but it was great. It was great. It was just a total reliance on the goodness of people and confidence in my child because I've told my child what to do beforehand and just in general being relaxed and not worrying. It's going to be fine. I think it comes back to harmony, right? Balance. Yeah. There's, there's that balance. And I think because homeschooling is, being home with our kids all the time even is fairly new, right? Like homeschooling became super popular in the 90s. You were so early on that train. I was early, yeah. Although it is also very, very old. I think sure. you know, in one yeah. way it's very old, but to our particular society is not super yeah. 
usual. But I'll tell you something. It's um, it is just real quickly. I will say that yeah. the attitude, the anxiety, and the feeling that you have to be watching your child every second. Also, it ends up not being that effective. But anyway, goes back to what I was saying before about monetization. And it's because childcare in our society is monetized. So where it should be a completely just something done for love, it is now something you pay someone to do. And because of daycare and nannying. And so when you are paying someone to do something, you expect results. You expect to be able to um, observe their productivity, let's call it, their um, their performance. And you expect to, as the payer, to be able to say, you know, that you approve or disapprove of what they're doing. Now, of course, raising children doesn't actually respond to that kind of attitude because children just take them a long time to learn things. So, I mean, you know, like we might send them them to school and we might expect like by the end of the year, I would appreciate if my child had learned, you know, subtraction, that seems reasonable. But if every single day we need to look at that day and say, did my child do something productive? Was my child behaved? Did my child respond to X, Y, and Z? Have we checked off these boxes? Well, that's not something that parents have ever asked themselves in the whole history of the world. And so this is just a tremendous burden because now mothers feel that they have to be beholden to some sort of you know cost-benefit analysis and bottom line survey or what have you. And so we feel we're always being judged. And so we think, you know, if we're not right there to say, okay, now we're going to go light the candles. Now I want you to walk up there and I want you to be sure not to set the church on fire and blah, blah, blah. Instead of just saying, (laughs) see people do it. I've talked to them about doing it. What's the worst that can happen? There's literally 10 adults standing here. Even if in the unlikely event that a candle were to fall on the floor it's a stone floor nothing is going to happen literally so but we can't but we can't say that we don't have the freedom to say that because of the monetization of this relationship and the thought that people are judging us and the thought that we have to produce instant results children just aren't susceptible to the production of instant results Mm. it's not going to happen and you are probably going to be that mom whose child is dropping lit candles or who, I mean, I know I am. How many times did they say, oh, oh, my child would never do such and such. And then of course they did it. And that's just life. That is how life is. Hmm. Yeah. I think what you've just explained is very freeing to the mother. You know, I mean, it's hard to do that, right? Like we can say it all day long. It's so hard, but what you've described, if you can, if we can take it to heart, there's a freedom to it. And so, yeah, I hope so. so. Um, I think we've reached our time. I need to let you go, but before I do, can, do you have time to just briefly tell us our listeners where they can find you? And if you want to tell them about your books, go ahead. Sure. I, I could definitely say a couple of things about my books. So um, the first book is The Little Oratory. And we wrote that to be a guide to having a 
sacred space in your home in a traditional manner and a very humble and simple manner. This is not any kind of grandiose plan, but just, you know, even if just a, a sort of guiding principle of making a place, having beauty in the home. And th- by that means to be able to connect with and live the liturgical year. And the liturgical year is truly the basis of our relationship with Christ and with each other. And I mean, I'm really not overstating it. Pope Pius XII in his encyclical Mediator Days said that the liturgical year is Christ because there's no way that we could set out to study or get a long, you know, syllabus or what have you to finally wrap our minds around everything we need to know about the spiritual life. No, we need to live the hours, the days, the seasons. We need to live according to the path that our forebears have laid out for us as given by God. And this, and that we can read in scripture. And if we read the book of Revelation, we will know that the liturgy is going on in heaven and that there's a river that flows and that it comes to earth and that what our aim should be should be to be on the banks of that river and be fruitful. And it really does start in the home. And it starts with our personal, like we ask ourselves, well, how can I pray? And how will I know God's will? And how do I live my life now that I know that I need to follow Christ? And the answer is really, we need beauty. So we need to be able to look at something that's beautiful, have the sacred images, and to organize our life in terms of this sacred time. That is what that book is about. But it's very simple and accessible. And um, then over the years on the blog, I wrote about homeschooling and the things that you need to know to homeschool, which I began with knowing what to have for dinner, knowing how to get your laundry done, knowing how to have a reasonable (laughs) <laughs> I did. I did. It's all there. How to um how to have a reasonably clean home but not a you know not be sort of a perfectionist. But I did feel that it was important to try to tell people that the reason that you are tempted by feminism and the idea that there's this glamorous thing outside of the home that you need to pursue is because you actually just don't know what to do at home. So I tried to lay it all out of like the competence that you need in the home and that having this environment is so important for teaching your children. So before we start discussing curriculum, we just need to talk about the rhythms of the home, the practical things and how to create this environment. And I do discuss curriculum at length and I do discuss ways of learning and philosophies of learning and everything. And um, eventually all of that I organized into the book, The Summa Domestica. And so that was kind of a joke, the title of that book. Sure. But everybody said, no, that's a that's a good title. So I went with it. So, um, and basically it's not as systematic as The Summa Theologica, but it is my attempt to say 
domestic life, here is how to live it. And I talk about family life, raising teenagers, the culture of the home, and again, the importance of the liturgical year as like the basis for figuring out all the things that we need to do. Somewhere along the line, I realized that people really just do not understand what marriage is. And um, the Catholic Church has a, there is a document, an encyclical written by Pius XI called Casti Canubi, which really does set out the sort of the treasury of the church, the church's thought of Christianity's thought on marriage. And so what I had produced was a guided reading to that encyclical because it's written in in sort of archaic language. It's a little hard to to understand, but also um, there's a historical context to it too because it was written um, right at the uh, start of communism and Nazism. The Pope saw what was coming. He understood very well that um, adultery, abortion, divorce, contraception were all going to be normalized, that there was a huge push for that. So he wrote a very systematic, very thorough encyclical about it and really wrote beautifully about the importance of the woman in the home. Mm. And her role in the home and how really the whole of humanity passes through the family. And so the role of the mother is of the paramount importance. And it is an extremely prophetic document. And I guarantee anybody who hasn't read it, if you read it, your idea of marriage will be changed for the better. Mm -hmm. And so that was why it was really just... um, inspired to write about it. So it's a it's also a fairly short book. I just literally go through each section of the encyclical and try to explain it in terms that I think can be understood and to kind of grapple with a few of the objections, etc. And to try to put a perspective on it, especially to say like if you as a woman think I just wanna I just I don't want to be like cleaning bathrooms and feeding toddlers, I want to be changing the world, but to see like how important a home is and how the world is bereft. The world is, we can, let's look around, look at our neighborhoods, look at our cities. Mm-hmm. We are learning in real time what it's like not to have homes with somebody loving in them. And so, um, yeah, I just kind of tried to write about that. So those are my three books. And they can be um, accessed on wherever you buy books. Um, the Little Oratory and the Summa Domestic are published by Sophia Institute Press. So they can be ordered there. And um, yeah, I think that that. And then my blog is called Like Mother, Like Daughter. It's found at likemotherlikedaughter.org. And I also have a little blog that I do not force myself to post a picture on but when I just want to say something real quick um usually not about more domestic issues usually more about politics or theology or just cultural observation I uh write there and that blog is called happy despite them and that is 
If you just put in happy despite them, Lila, you will find me. Okay. So again, that's happy despite them and like mother, like daughter.org. So listeners, whether you're homeschooling moms, working moms, not moms yet, husbands of moms, <laughs> we hope this conversation edified you and brought you some beauty and freedom to your daily life. Um, is there anything you want to add, Lila, before we? No, I think I would just would say I really just do want to encourage everyone and maybe just encourage everyone to know that um, mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, what we do in the home really matters. And it's it's that little hidden place. You know, sometimes I, I used to think, well, it's funny that our Lord Jesus Christ did not talk about the home and home life. And then one day it struck me, well, no, but he chose to be born in a home. <laughs> and he could have he could have just come to earth in a chariot. And instead he chose to be born in a home and people have revered that home ever since. And that is more than any sermon that is reality. And it's kind of like the, the Uber fact, the, the, the great overarching um, truth with which the gospel begins that the world word became flesh. And in this um, time of Advent, especially, I think we can, if we are just open and receptive, and if we just ponder and ask God to show us what our home means to the world, he will show us and it will be a glorious vision. Hmm. That's beautiful. And not not to mention, um, he was born of not just anybody, but the Theotokos, right? Yes. Lady. So, I mean, what, what is more glorious than, who is more glorious than her? And what did she do with her life? She followed him. She was with him every step of the way. And it's a perfect thing for us as mothers. We talk about our children imitating us. We should be imitating her. We should be imitating her. She is the highest creation. And the liturgy tells us this over and over again. She is higher than the cherubim and the seraphim. She is the she is the crowning star of creation. And that should tell us something. And you know, this is what I also try to say is that there is a hierarchy in life and in in the book. Um, God has no grandchildren uh, about the about marriage. I talk about this that you know the husband, the wife, the hierarchy is that the wife is submissive to the husband and the husband is the leader of the family. And that hierarchy is a hierarchy of authority. Nowhere are we told that the authority is more virtuous. And the proof of that is that the person of highest virtue is a woman. And so she submitted, she was the handmaid. She totally emptied herself to be the mirror and um, the vessel. And God made her the, his crowning glory of creation. So there's so much to, to think about there. And, mm -hmm. and that goes back to what I said at the beginning about stepping out of conflict mode and trying to see things in 
in in terms of complementarity, in terms of what God wants us to see about how we should cooperate and love each other and be in peace. Mm. As always, magnusinstitute.org for more. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Take care. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.